0: It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here with a great show, including uh, 10 great questions from our listeners about all sorts of security topics and a bonus question, actually, two you're going to really like. Stay tuned. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love
1: from people you trust.
0: This, this is Twit. Is twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com/android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at cachefly.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 294, recorded March 30th, 2011 your questions steve's answers number one fourteen security now is brought to you by go to assist express if you're in tech support clients rely on you for fast and reliable service help them the fast and easy way with go to assist express for a free thirty-day trial visit go to slash security it's time for security now the show that helps you stay safe online with the man the myth, the legend, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. GRC.com, Steve Gibson. Good morning, and Steve. And that never gets old. Yeah, well, it's true. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, I, I have to say, if you're going to do a security show, there are lots of security experts, but they're very few with the breadth and depth that you have. Uh, so this show is more than just, you know, how to lock your browser. This is um, how stuff works. It's how crypto works. Uh, and, and so I like somebody like you who really has a broad
1: brush Understanding of this, stuff. well, and it comes from my passion. I just, I really, really am interested in yes. this stuff. Well, we so, share
0: your interest, so that's why yeah. we're glad
1: you're here. Um, we today is a Q and A day. Yes, yes, Q and A. We've got ten questions and a couple. Some of them are sort of short things. So, I, as I was running through things, there were some little tasty tidbits that I just couldn't resist throwing in. We got a couple little bonuses at the end, and not, not an overabundance of security news this week Uh, no updates have happened um there was i just i don't know why i feel compelled to mention when real player has problems um we last did about a month ago they had a security fix in early february And there's another one a uh, a heap buffer overflow i don't have any real sense either for how many people are still using real player but i think there is some penetration for example in the corporate world and Somewhere I was, I try to go like C SPAN or something. There's, they still like make you use real. Oh, I hate that. When you go to real, a site
0: and you have to use real player to play
1: back the video eg- or audio. Exactly. <sighs> so, anyway, the uh, on the security focus website, I kind of got a kick out of this. The apparently the person who found the problem described it saying, real player is an ugly media player. <laughs> I don't know if he didn't like the UI or if he just meant you know, ugly from a from a hacker standpoint or from, like, you know, an I- internal working standpoint. But he says an it's ugly both. media it's player. Both. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Developed by Real Network and used mainly for its browser's plugin support, um, the proprietary formats... Oh, uh, plugin supporting the, pro- pr- the proprietary formats of its developer. And then under the bug category on the security focus uh, posting, he wrote... Classical heap buffer overflow (laughs) during the handling of the IVR files caused by the allocation of a certain amount of data, the frame size, decided by the attacker. And and you never want to have your allocations decided (laughs) Decided by by the attacker.
0: attacker. That sounds bad. I don't know what it is. Really not a good idea.
1: We're only going to allocate a little bit, but we're going to write a lot and just see what we stomp over. And uh, that, of course, is the way you overflow the heap. And he says, and the copying of another arbitrary amount on the same buffer. Mm. So, yes, that's about as bad as it could get. Yeah. Uh, that's in the rvrender.dll um, I checked. They have no updates as of the recording of this podcast. Hopefully, they will get on to it. The nice thing about Real is that they're not trying to make any claims as to, well, we're only going to update quarterly, so hold on to your seats in the meantime. So, I, you know, they'll fix it when they can. Although I think I also just, it flew by my eye on the news a couple of days ago that they just lost yeah. their, their CEO. CEO. Quit yeah. After a
0: year. Rob Glazier, the founder of uh, Real Networks, quit a year and a half ago. Replaced uh-huh. him. That guy just quit. It yeah. doesn't, doesn't feel like a vital growing <laughs> <concern>. <laughs> Ongoing enterprise. You know, they tried, uh, you know, uh, last uh, year they announced kind of a complete uh, f- uh, pivot on their business model. I, can't, I don't even remember what it was. It just was, it was odd. And I think it's obviously not going so well. So,
1: well, And when I went to their site to see what they had to say about this, there's like all this other stuff going on. It's like, okay, and there's yeah. like nine different things they're trying. You know, essentially, I mean, they were first to, to their credit. Yep. Uh, Rob left Microsoft and founded Real. And, you know, they were out there early. Unfortunately, they really upset people who cared by by over commercializing their right. player right you know i mean it it was i mean it was like spyware before spyware existed it was really nasty and and so they, they got a bad a bad reputation and really created an opportunity for other for other alternatives so i just think their day is probably uh passed. yeah i think that's now funny. the big news this week I'm not going to address in today's podcast because it's going to be the entire topic for next week because there's so much interesting detail about it. And that, of course, is the rogue SSL certificates that were issued by a reseller of of Komodo. Um, Komodo was one of the trusted certificate authorities in all of our browsers and a collection of alarming sites. I had the list earlier this week, and I've got it in my notes. We'll go over it in detail next week, but I mean like Yahoo and Google and and a few other very high-profile domains had had SSL certificates issued um, maliciously. Now, some rumors are, for example, that it was hackers in Iran uh, or even maybe acting on behalf of the state. Because, as our listeners know, um, if a... Essentially, what a rogue SSL certificate allows you to do is impersonate that site. But other people have said, wait a minute, you know that's only part of the game, because you've got to get the person to go there, like to the wrong server in order for it to in order for that server the rogue server to serve the rogue certificate but if you're a country and you control the borders of your traffic then you don't need to spoof IPs you don't need like a DNS attack or something you can essentially put up a proxy and no one within your confines would know that they weren't actually going to that correct site and SSL would not function in terms of uh, keeping privacy. So uh, anyway, really interesting topic. Um, I I didn't want to ignore it, but I wanted to give everybody a heads up. We're going to plow into that. And we've never talked about revocation because the SSL certificates were quickly revoked. Uh, To their credit, Chrome immediately revved their browser, blacklisting the bad certificates. Microsoft, yes, Microsoft, Immediately produced a Windows update. But that's where I, the automatic updates of Chrome
0: have a huge advantage. Really do, because it happens instantly, automatically, without your involvement. And who knows who updates Windows and how often? You know.
1: Yeah, and in fact, I I immediately tweeted to my followers. Uh, the link to Microsoft's page where there was just a menu of OS versions. Each OS version had its own little DLL or, or XE that you, you could download. And so Microsoft immediately pushed out um, a bunch of, of updates also to deal with this. And I did see something interesting The in saying Mozilla sort of ignored the whole thing and after the fact now is unhappy that they weren't more forthcoming about it. So anyway, we're going we're gonna to go into this in detail because, you know, we've talked about this before. Remember my shock when I looked at the number of of certificate authorities that our browsers now trust. Famously, we used to joke about the Hong Kong post office being among <laughs> yes. them. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is what happens when you have... Um, when you have this kind of problem. So that's our topic for next week. We'll, we're gonna cover it in detail. Um, and then just a little bit more on the RSA secure the RSA secure ID breach. Um, pretty much everyone's upset. <laughs> and one quote that I really liked from the SANS um, Security, the SANS Institute, Alan Paller, who's, who's a friend, and very well-connected director of research of sans wrote in their most recent newsletter he said one of the largest defense contractors has stopped the use of rsa tokens by its senior staff
0: that's how serious that one is
1: yes they replaced the tokens with another manufacturer's solution Mm. i asked says alan i asked whether the move had been planned for a long time, the answer was no. We did it because of the breach. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as I said and as I blogged when this immediately happened, it, it could only be one thing. The, the secrets that they were being entrusted with were the secret key to public serial number mapping database and... There's only one way the secure ID system could be weakened, and that's if that's what got out. And well, that proves it. Sure, it looks like that's what got out. Yep. Yeah. Also in the news, the um, we've talked about, of course, Stuxnet that failed. I mean, we did a whole uh, whole podcast on it. Famously, it was used to deliver a the first rootkit to. The SCADA system, S-C-A-D-A, which is an acronym standing for supervisory control and data acquisition, uh, which are the process control technology, which in in this particular case of Stuxnet was running Iran's nuclear enrichment process. We talked about how um, uh, it was some vulnerabilities in that software that allowed Stuxnet to do its work. Well... What I found interesting was the news that 34 new exploitable vulnerabilities had been found in these SCADA systems produced by a handful of different manufacturers. And and this is a classic case of there are vulnerabilities everywhere. And all you have to do is look for them and you find them. So... These SCADA systems hadn't, until Stuxnet focused people's attention on them, hadn't been really looked at closely. Now, security researchers are going, ooh, you know, (laughs) Stuxnet found some problems. What other problems might there be? And, oh, what do you know? Here's 34 in two weeks. I bet that's, you know, people don't treat
0: this kind of stuff as, uh, as as insecure as they say PC is. They just
1: don't think of it that way. Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. And there there is some awareness. For example, we're we're seeing that, that there's a sort of an awareness that you can't have a you cannot have a Windows machine on the network. Right. So so these SCADA machines that are that use Windows as their front ends, they're they're like the 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 way the the um, the workstation that you use to program the the lower-level process control hardware is Windows-hosted, but everyone knows that's not safe. So those machines are kept off of the network, And but as we learned with Stuxnet, it cleverly used USB drives because you still have to get files to and from those machines, so they just use a USB drive rather than a network, and bang, you know, same, same effect. So um, anyway, I just... Uh, peop- I got a lot of email from people saying, oh, no, no, what does this mean? You know, 34 more problems. It's like, well, this is significant because these these SCADA systems are what run our nuclear reactors and our dams and, you know, factories. You know, Leo, when, when you were famously touring Ford's uh, production, uh, production lines, building cars, right. you know, all of those robot arms are controlled by these things. Oh, imagine that getting crit. Oh, <laughs> not good. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was at the uh, this back in the 70s at the AI lab at Stanford. They had a a robot arm behind plexiglass shields, and there was like a a rope around it yeah. with with uh, limit switches. And I remember the first time I saw this, it's like uh what's that about and well, they, and you know and they and they said well do you know what happens when case. there's a bug in our software <laughs> i mean this thing was Jeez. hydraulically powered oh, and yeah. apparent and i heard stories about it just literally you know pounding its own table into oh. the ground when, when oh, there was a bug in the software oh, so oh, anyway so i'm it's it will end up having been a good thing in in the same sense that Fire Sheep has been a really good thing for HTTPS yeah. and for, get, for vendors getting themselves, you know, taking SSL security more significantly. Stuxnet, which was tightly targeted at the Iranian nuclear enrichment, we now know without, without a doubt, has, you know, it had the beneficial effect of turning attention to the security of these SCADA systems, which, you know, you can imagine attackers... Maybe they're getting a little bored these days. It's like, "Well, let's open the floodgates on the Hoover Dam because they're there." Be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know. What well, what a hack that would be. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, anyway. I get so a lot
0: of attention for that. I mean, never mind <laughs> bad idea.
1: Bad, idea. bad but, idea. But anyway, we are the 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 problem is these systems have not had the kind of security right. scrutiny that that Windows has because no one's been looking at them. And when you do, oh, what do you know? 34 exploitable exploitable vulnerabilities. <laughs> And then, in perhaps my favorite little whoops of the week, uh, Oracle's MySQL.com site, you know, MySQL site, right. was breached mm-hmm. through a SQL attack. Oh please! <laughs> um, the there was a great a little posting that I'll read on the H Security site. Um, it says MySQL allegedly hacked via an SQL injection. MySQL, um, uh, uh, on a security mailing list over the weekend, an, un, an unknown party published details about the structure and content of databases on the website of database vendor MySQL, <sighs> which, you know, is not public. None right. of that information is meant to be public. The information was apparently accessible via a security hole on my SQL.com's website. The hacker says the vulnerability is a blind SQL injection problem. This is a worst case scenario for a web server because the flaw allows access to the entire database behind a public facing website. SQL injections are possible when, when SQL commands can be embedded in user input so that web servers pass them on to the backend database. Blind SQL injection means that the result of the database operation is not displayed. In other words, the attacker has to work blindly. In such cases, hackers therefore often ask the database yes-no questions and link one of the answers to a time-consuming operation. Depending on how long it takes the resulting page to appear, they can tell whether the response to the, what the response to the query was. So, I mean, it's, be, it's classic, beautiful hacking. Among other things, the data made, pu- made public includes password hashes oh. for database access, and some of the plain text passwords behind them have already popped up on the Internet. Oracle, the database vendor that acquired MySQL when it bought Sun Microsystems in 2010, has yet to comment on the matter. So, anyway, even the database vendors are vulnerable to database injection. Well,
0: if there's a MySQL
1: problem, of course, who's going to be running MySQL? (laughs) I'd say the MySQL website. First place I'd go. (laughs) Exactly. Now, I did want to mention in miscellanea that I got a number of... of, uh, I don't know what to call it, feedback, for lack, of, I won't characterize it, a- a- anything other than that, to my reference to toy operating systems no. last week. When How I talk- dare you call my operating system, whatever <laughs> it might be, a toy! <laughs> exactly. And people say, well, and you're using XP. And it's like, well, yes, that's true. Um, which Because that's what everybody else is using. I would love to be using U- Unix, but, you know... When I'd Steve be all-
0: retires... <laughs> He'll be open BSD all the way. <laughs> Precisely. whatever. Is it net BSD? I can never remember which one is the one. It's you, free is the one. Free BSD.
1: Free yeah. BSD. Um, you know, we're, we're being subjected to emergency out-of-cycle updates pushed on us constantly. We update monthly from, you know, blindly accepting what Microsoft gives us. Uh, if we visit a bad website, we could be taken over um mysterious things happen all the time on our systems and we just sort of shrug and reboot them i mean you know my icons all turn into something different and i go okay fine you know it's time to reboot because i haven't for a week or two and you know just ask anybody who does pc support they're they're they never see the same thing twice users bring computers well i can't get on the internet well i can't print anymore well you know uh Notepad doesn't work anymore. Well, IE won't open. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's one thing or another. Oh, believe me, I, this is what I hear on the radio show nonstop. These, these are toys. Yeah. I mean, it's just, this is not, I mean, and the fact that we're used to it doesn't make it right. This is, I mean, you know, the the systems that I have that are running GRC haven't been rebooted in four years. Wow. I mean there it took a long time to get them that stable it was really hard to do but I mean they are rock solid actual operating systems that that, that are not like this where it's like oh I downloaded some patches you know may require a reboot when has it not required a reboot <laughs> may <sighs> no I mean it's just you know it it, it is full employment. For guarantee, for anybody involved with these things, anyone doing PC support, you know, as you mentioned, you on the radio show, Leo, I mean, it's it just, it's endless. It
0: actually makes me nuts, because I feel like um, people, quite rightly, normal users, have, you know, been sold this idea that they can use technology easily, safely, reliably, and and, and change their lives, and then... Unfortunately what the the reality co- comes down that they they have to become security experts, they have to become geeks, they have to become enthusiasts or rely upon somebody oh, else
1: and learn not to click links. You know, yeah. mom sent me some some very well-meaning birthday cards. Oh, I hate that. You know, it's like she gave I your address to everybody. I know. You know, so my email address is out there and and I'm I didn't open them. She said, Honey, didn't you get those? I said, Mom, we've had this talk before. I I, I will not open those. <laughs> I well, I don't it, you know, know what they are? Right. I said, I and she said, Well, what do you mean? I said, Well, Mom, um, their site could have been compromised. People's sites are being compromised all the time. That's a and good then point. It, it doesn't have to be a malicious vendor. They could just be hacked. Well, like like Oracle was. They yeah. don't I mean no, and, and uh, so who was it? Oh, McAfee. It turns out has, is, their McAfee site is riddled with, it was just, this was in the news this week, riddled with security oh, problems. that inspires confidence. <laughs> Jeez. But that's, well, the, that's the thing that kind
0: of, and by the way, this is why Apple sells the iPad in, in droves and will sell more and more and more, is because people are really uh, frustrated and puzzled and baffled and they don't know what to do. These complex operating systems are just too hackable.
1: Yeah, actually, Leo, I've got to tell you, I have opened some sketchy things on an iPad because it's a it's a safe little contained environment.
0: Well, well, we hope. I mean, I'm sure there's exploits there too, but
1: w- well, done. Other good, uh, you know, other safe things too. But right. yes, but I mean, it's it's not the, the, nearly the complex complex system that a a full operating system is. No, I mean, and so you know, in in Microsoft, in defense of the toy maker, I will say <laughs> <laughs> that. They, they they these things do everything i mean anything right. you could ask for and that's
0: the part of the problem a full a full general purpose computer is inherently complex and uh, yeah. requires a complex uh, priesthood to maintain
1: and the highest level expert there is has no idea right. what most of the files are right on these systems, they, huge teams all submit their blobs, and and then the only way Microsoft can know that it kind of might work is when they put it out and have it tested extensively, and when they ship it, it has tens of thousands of known problems right. at release time because though well you know we called it Windows 2000 and shoot it's November. Well,
0: and they can't help it. I mean, there is no perfect OS, so there's never a point where you have a bug-free OS
1: to ship. You'd never ship. Well, and decisions have been made, like, oh, we need more performance, so we're going to move the graphics system, which used to be out in user space, down into the kernel. Right. Well, we know what happened with that. Well, you know, so bad the, the, idea. The thing to do is make what the,
0: the iPad essentially is, which is a system that keeps users from doing anything. You can't put files on an iPad. You can't.
1: You know, it's uh, it, the dumber the system. And, the and what do we hear? We hear complaints right. from people I that the iPad computer. doesn't have a real file right. system. Well, that's why. It's like, yeah, I mean, you you can't have it all. So right. so did RSA learn a lesson? Oh mm-hmm. my God. Can you imagine they're going to change their architecture? Man. You, you know, absolutely. You know, some people wrote saying, how could RSA? I mean, we sort of hold them up as like this ideal of, you know, well, they invented public key security. How can they make them a This? It's like, they're using Windows. Yeah. You know, it's a toy. It's junk. You know, yes, we're all using it. I'm using it. I don't like it. But, you know. There <laughs> I, it is. It's where everybody is. Right. Yeah, I I would love to be. Oh, my God, do I pine for the days of, you know, a textual interface and commands? Yes, but, you know, I'm not useful to anybody if that's what I'm doing over in the corner somewhere. So, okay. (laughs) That'll Take teach a deep you. Yeah. That'll teach you for for asking me about toy operating systems. Well, no, this is
0: the- you know. Look, I don't know why, but people treat this like a, uh, like team sports, like rah rah, my team's the best, go team, go team, and it isn't a team sport. These are just these are just tools, and yeah. uh, you, you know it's silly to say this hammer is so much better than any other hammer. If the head comes flying off and pokes you in the eye, it's a toy. It hurts. Yeah. Period.
1: It doesn't matter if you love your hammer. It doesn't love you. (laughs) It's just a tool. Okay, so I did want to mention something very cool, which is Amazon's announcement of a virtual machine-based Android test drive system. I'm very interested in this, yeah. Oh, very. it actually, when you go to Amazon's site, Amazon, of course, released their app store. Mm -hmm. I noticed they're spelling it as one word, Which Apple
0: does as well. That's why there's a lawsuit.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't realize Apple was... Because I I had seen it as two words for some reason. Oh, no, it is
0: two words on the Apple
1: site. You're right. Yeah. But I don't think that makes any difference. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that, Amazon. (laughs) Um, So, um, anyway, this is very cool. You know, they have that EC2, the Elastic Cloud Computing Technology. So cool. And so Amazon is... I mean, they're doing many neat things. They also just announced a couple days ago a music in the cloud system. Yeah. It's limited to the US whereas their cloud drive technology for storing stuff is global but the music based system at least for now is only US based.
0: Yeah, and that's just it's cuz of licenses, you know. Yes, you got to yeah. get every record company in every country and oh.
1: But so for example, users can upload 5 gig of music, which actually is a pretty nice little collection. And then it's available from Android, on Android players, or PCs and and Macs and Linux machines. You know, so you're able to just like stream music from Amazon's cloud. Yep. Well, they've gone one step further. They actually have created a virtual Android OS. And I mean, it must be that they're going to be producing a tablet. It's just you know, that's, that's no doubt about that. There's so, just no yeah, doubt about it yeah, any yeah. longer. And and arguably they have the chance, you know, to be a real mover in the industry. Uh, so we, we talked about this uh, yesterday on MacBreak quickly and I don't think Google minds.
0: I think Google says, "Go for it. We'll help you." Yeah, it's good. They they don't want to be the um, the the uh, uh, you know the marketplace. They want to be I, Google.
1: Right. So so one of the things that has annoyed me with the iPad is there is no trial software. I've got all kinds of crap right. that I purchased for a buck and or two yep. or three and it's only the low bear, the low the low Ninety nine
0: cent who, yeah, If okay, so if it's a piece of crap, it's
1: like yeah. Okay, fine. I guess you know, book. Yeah. you know, but there's so much junk. It's like oh, you know, how do I get rid of this thing? I mean, I, you was know, it's like okay, well, there were, there went a dollar, there went two, there mm-hmm. went three. Mm-hmm. So it, it is annoying that Apple doesn't do this. Well, so what Amazon? And, and by the has way, done, Android
0: always has. Uh, you've always been able to. They had a refund process. They've they've shortened the length of time. It used to have a a day try something, if you didn't like it and you deleted it, it would automatically give you your money back. Now they've cut that right. to 15 hours, which is why I'm glad Amazon's doing what they're doing. This is really a
1: good idea. So they literally launch a, an Android VM instance using their Elastic Cloud Computing technology and their servers run the app for you and then download the display... Dynamically to your web browser. That's brilliant! I love this. Oh, so you can you it's can. probably click. just EC2, right? Yeah, it is. It, they're they're using EC2, yep. and so you can click things. You can play with the app on your web browser, not installing any software. I think it's like 30 minutes cuz I saw in their sample it said 29 minutes remaining in the lower that right makes hand sense. corner. Yeah, that makes so sense. you get like 30 minutes just to poke around and 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 I mean actually you know use it virtually not even download not buy it not commit not trial just there it is running but you but if you want it then you click the you know the little famous Amazon orange yeah I need this button and you can buy the Amazon the Android app. So this is, this is very cool stuff they're doing. Yeah, I just wanted to bring our it to our listeners' attention. Yeah, this is, well, yeah. every, <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> I sit
0: on. I sit on MacBreak Weekly, and people get mad at me because I say, "Look, you know, it, it's finally like Andy and Anko's finally saying, you know, this Android's not so bad." And it's like I've been trying to tell you this <laughs> for. <laughs> <laughs> There's there are so many great features in Android phones, and I think people. You know, there's this, because Apple was first with iOS, there's just a little bit of a prejudice towards Blindness. iOS. Blindness. Yeah. yeah. Now, I admit tablets, we've got a way to go, but uh, we, I don't know to say we, again, that's the team mentality, isn't it? It's, my team has a way to go. They've got a way to go. But uh, I think for phones, this is a pretty amazing system. And I, I'm very interested to see how Amazon enters this. They, they could change everything. Yeah. 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 They're big. They're, that's they're, what, well, yeah, a- they know Amazon, how to market. They know how to do this stuff. Yeah, They're smart. EC2 is amazing. S3 is
1: amazing. Yes. These guys do more than just sell books. Yes, they really, really, really have broadened their okay. their reach. Yep. Um, speaking of which, American Express has launched Serve. This I'm is, also
0: really interested in.
1: Yes, a, a very interesting looking PayPal competitor. Mm-hmm. We've often talked about there's no company more in desperate need of competition than PayPal. And American Express has come along and done that. So I just oh, wanted oh, yeah. to to put that in our listeners on our listeners' radar that there is something from American Express. The I read a comprehensive review, and it sort of seemed like six of one, half a dozen of the other. Some things PayPal charges for, some things American Express doesn't. Some things American Express does that PayPal doesn't, and different things. You know, they work a little bit differently, but you know, essentially. It looks like American Express is very interested in getting into this game in, in a serious way. So it's about no. time
0: uh, PayPal had some oh. competition. They're just so God. they're so really so bad. And I use it because there isn't a lot of uh, choice. If there was something better, Google Google Payments is pretty good, but uh, Amazon has a system. But uh, I think uh, I think American Express well
1: you know, a financial industry, financial services company. And, and you know many people have said, "Hey, Steve, you know I, I trust you and all." Um, and so I gave you my credit card information when I had to buy a copy of Spinrite, but why couldn't I use PayPal? And it's like, well, you know, I use PayPal as an eBay customer buying old computers and things, and I've had no problems with them, but, but we had a a perfect case in point, those little PDP eight models that you Mm -hmm. see, you know, running behind me while we're doing this podcast, the, the guy that. That produced the kits. Remember when we were organizing a big group purchase to to to, uh, to pre-purchase a bunch of kits? Well, a whole bunch of people sent him their money, and after a whole bunch of it accumulated, PayPal shut it down, yeah. and and then demanded all kinds of ridiculous paperwork, saying, "Well, you know, you can't take money for product you haven't delivered." you have to deliver the product and he tried to explain to them that everyone knew that this was, you know, prepayment to get enough to see if we had enough orders to proceed and if not all their money would be refunded blah blah blah. I mean it was a huge nightmare. And and if you, you know, there's the the industry is horror stories about vendors that that have had massive problems with PayPal. And so yes. there's just there's just no way I'm going to subject myself to to, you know, a third party where you can't get actually anybody responsible on the phone. Well, we use, you know, that's how
0: we take donations, just because it's the simplest, the easiest, Drupal, the and web. for that, it makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah, and the yeah. web, everybody uses it. You can use a credit card. Drupal supports it with a plug-in that makes it very easy. I did this all by myself. That's how, uh, you know, in the earliest days, I had to figure out how to do this. But I think, yeah. I think it's time, you know, in the next generation, for us to look at alternatives. And I, you know, I, I just knock on wood that we haven't had a frozen account or, you know, we've well, had no problems so far.
1: Yes, and American Express is a name everyone has heard of. Oh, yeah,
0: everybody would trust that.
1: Yeah, so I think that's that. It really makes a, a nice step forward. I hope they don't, they don't screw things up or have any real bad breaches and so forth. Yeah. Um, I did get a nice note I wanted to share briefly with our listeners. Christian Ale- Alexandrov, who's in Sofia City, Bulgaria. Yeah, baby. As you can tell from, from what I'm about to read, English is not his first language, but I salute him because his is much better than my Bulgarian. So <laughs> he says, Hello, Steve. Spinrite saved my St. Valentine Day. Oh. With, um, he says, A friend of mine is a restaurant owner who uses very old compact Presario M2000 laptop, Intel Centrino mobile CPU, uh, a 1600, one gig of RAM, and so forth. Um, uh, the owner called me to go there on emergency call because his laptop just died in his hands while browsing for some recipes for the restaurant's chef for the St. Valentine Day menu. I went there as fast as possible to see the corpse. <laughs> 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 Meaning the laptop, of yes, course. Yes. He assumed motherboard died, but quick tour around bio settings showed that this assumption was wrong. I suspected the hard drive on such old computer. I took the laptop home and started to mess around with files settings. My phone rang and he said, "Look, I have important files on that drive. Do you have backup?" Was my first question. He says, "No." no. <laughs> it's universal. Net. <laughs> Net. Then he says he needs these files at all cost. So I told him I will do best. To help him. He promised me that if I pull this stunt through, I will have the entire St. Valentine evening free, unlimited amount of food and drinks for the whole evening for free and music <laughs> of my choice for me and my girlfriend. Good way to make friends. So I booted this messed up laptop <laughs> from my spin-right boot with three O's that threw me from that boot boot. CD, and I chose to run at level four. Once I saw that Spinrite took matters in its own hands, I went to the restaurant to set up a nice surprise, a gift and flowers for my beloved girl, and a nice valentine cake. It took Spinrite 17 hours and 30 minutes to process the whole drive. At the end, Spinrite says this drive has long years of faithful service ahead. Not, <laughs> really? Nothing... Is that a message in Spinrite? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does, the, the, the smart system does, you know, show you how the drive's doing. You have long life, my friend. He said, and now the computer booted and all of the drive's files were saved. Oh, I love this. I was surprised as much as I could be because of the old model and age of, age and obvious abuse of the laptop. <laughs> so I updated everything, ran various tools, I backed up the files, I fixed the partitions and so on, updated windows, system protection, such as antivirus and set up... Well, so he really spoofed the thing up. XP, SP3, firewall, and I connected to the laptop to my router so I can update the OS... While I'm waiting all updates to come and install, I decided to share this story with Security Now listeners. That's great. I brought the laptop to its owner, and he tested it. He was happy to see all his files intact and the laptop working fine. Thank you, Steve, for this great piece of software. And thank you, Steve and Leo, uh, for this outstanding podcast. Best wishes to both TwitTV and GRC.com from a happy Spinrite user. I so love thank that. thank you, Christian.
0: for That is great- just great. Great story and I'm glad you didn't fix the uh, the i mean it's it, his English is excellent, but I, but I, we could hear his voice coming through, which I love yeah, yeah, that's yeah I love that Christian, thank you for listening to the show too. that's wonderful. yes all right, we've got questions uh, uh ten good ones plus a couple of uh, freebies we're going to throw in at Some no fun. cost to you, but before we get to uh, your questions and Steve's answers, uh, let me talk a little bit about our good friends at Citrix who do that fabulous program. Call to assist Express. Now every uh, every tech person who listens to this show has a toolkit. I know, I'm sure, and I trust Spinrite is part of that toolkit. You know, the little CD you bring around, maybe some cables. I like, you know, I have like a USB adapter that uh, allows me to take a bare drive and mount it. I just used, in fact, uh, and this is going to be a part of my kit from now on. One of those eSATA external bays that you put a drive in. Henry's drive uh, died. I was going to Spinrite in because Spinrite will work through that, right? Yep. Yep. W- works great because because it, it's basically
1: like the it's, same it's as a direct motherboard connection. Yeah, yes. yeah.
0: So I was about to do that. Uh, then it turned out I could read it. I just can't write to the drive. So that's fine. I'm able to get his data off. But there's one more thing you need, and that is go to Assist Express. Why would you want, and by the way, you don't need this on a disk. This is the beauty of it. This means you don't have to go anywhere. You can log in to your client, customers, family, and friends' computers. Fix the problem with remote access. Now, you know Citrix knows remote access. I don't have to tell you. They are the name in remote access. Turns out they're also the name in remote support, thanks to GoToAssist Express. It's the easiest way to view and control another computer remotely. And it's very affordable. It has features just for the tech person, you know, eight sessions at once, unattended sessions if you want. And most importantly, I think very easy for your client. Uh, I use it with my mom. And mom's pretty technically literate, but I, but I couldn't make her jump through hoops, you know, port forwarding a firewall or, you know, installing complex software. It's simple. I was in a chat with her. Actually, I was in Skype with her, and she said, I'm having trouble. I opened up the Skype chat. I gave her the link to go to Assist Express. I'd already installed it, of course, on my desktop. Uh, she just pressed a button, said allow. It's running. Now I'm fixing her computer. I mean, 30 seconds later. You could chat with your client so they know what you're doing. Uh, you can even show them your computer because all of all of uh, Citrix's remote access products are are two way. Oh, they're also all cross platform, so you can fix a Mac from a PC, a PC from a Mac. You can drag and drop files from your computer to the other computer. Uh, with eight sessions, you can start and install, and then go to the next one and the next one. I just I, I I can't I can't say enough good things about this. It is so good. I want you to try it, and best of all, try it free for 30 days. If you've got a list, you know, a little punch list of problems your friends and family are going at you with, just do this. Try free for 30 days. Go to assist.com/security. You get the full the full setup, you get to do everything, as many sessions as you want, as often as you want, as long as you want. Um, 128-bit SSL encryption, end-to-end 24/7 customer support for you. Go to assist.com/security. We all have toolkits. This is something you've got to have. Go to assist.com slash security. Now it's time on Security Now to answer questions to Steve Arino. By the way, people ask me, how do I ask a question? You go to com slash feedback. Fill out a form. Steve will, uh, Steve will uh, look at it. Can't You don't answer them individually, I know, but uh, you couldn't.
1: Yeah, we got. Uh, I checked the mailbag, and there were more than three hundred
0: <laughs> yeah. from from the last two weeks ago. Right. So, but yeah. you take uh, representative samples.
1: Yep, I do. I, I sort of see. I sense the wind. I uh, in in one case, I think number eight here, we've actually got two questions in one because they were people at two p- different people asking almost the same question, but I wanted with a little bit of a twist. So right. I sort of try to combine them and find something representative, and 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 try to um, do what I can. Well, here you
0: go. This is a question one from Patrick Pater, London, England. He says, drive encryption's killing him." I'm a long-time listener of Security Now, Steve. I enjoy it as a good source of information and amusement. (laughs) 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 I hope he's not laughing at us. Uh, Being a software developer, for many years, I put an effort into keeping my data secure. The machine is a T9400 running SUSE Linux. Uh, using, uh, until recently, it's 200 gigabyte, 7200 RPM, full disk encryption hard drive. A couple of weeks ago, I switched to an SSD drive, wanted to keep my data still secure. I performed full partition encryption on the drive uh, using OpenSUSE's encrypted root file system. How-to. However, the amount of CPU power needed to decrypt and encrypt data on the fly was through the roof. Don't get me wrong. Thanks to you and Leo, I know a thing or two about how encryption uh, works and... Of course that it comes with a price but can you advise a reasonably usable crypto that won't cost an arm and a leg i've got this ssd for speed and i'm not getting it the drive stats for non-cached read timings full disk encryption the old style around 50 megabytes a second that was on the uh, on the standard drive on an ssd unencrypted 220 megabytes a second but now with encryption, 70 megabytes a second. So that's a lot slower. Thanks for a great show and uh, spin right. BS, PS, not PS, PS. Thanks to you, my private project, spacebench.com, now accepts Bitcoin. <laughs> that's great. So that's interesting. I, and um, what, well, what do you think?
1: Well, okay. When I was playing with TrueCrypt, I was unable to measure a decrease in speed. And I did, I mean, I remember talking about it extensively on on the podcast we did about TrueCrypt. And I was very impressed. It seemed to me that on the machine that I was using, which wasn't particularly muscular, that the overhead of encrypting and decrypting was fitting underneath the speed of the drive. So that while the drive was reading data, the uh, AES-based encryption was... Was as fast as the drive was, so that we weren't seeing a substantial overhead hmm. from from that process. Now, he went from he went from unencrypted 220 megabytes per second to an encrypted partition at 70. So it's about a three to one difference in in like a, you know he's is running a third as fast. He's he's his SSD is still going faster than his old mechanical drive was. But if he weren't encrypting, the SSD would be going more than four times faster than the mechanical drive that was running at 50 megabits per, or megabytes per second, as opposed to 220. So so my feeling is that it it may just be that the the encryption technology that he's using is, for whatever reason, not as tightly optimized as as what TrueCrypt has done. I know, because I looked at TrueCrypt very closely, that, you know, they've got a ton of code that is in Assembler. All of the speed-critical stuff, all the crypto has been, you know, hand-coded and hand-tuned in Assembler so that, specifically, to reduce the overhead as far as possible. If, for example, um, the, the, um, the encrypted root file system technology he's using had stayed in C it would be secure, but easily a fourth the speed of it being written, you know, by hand in, in, in assembly. So it might just be that it has not been optimized. The The thing that I wanted to... I think it's TrueCrypt.
0: I'm looking at the uh, how-to. Really? Mm, well, uh, this is an interesting question. I, I guess it. you can choose from uh, different systems. Maybe he's not using... TrueCrypt. Uh yeah. It's a it's it TrueCrypt though is one of the choices that they talk about in this article that he's he's mentioning.
1: Oh okay. Because he says S B D don't know what that yeah. said. Uh, SBD encrypted root file system. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, so if if True and does TrueCrypt do whole drive encryption? Maybe that's not available uh, over uh, on uh, that platform. Uh, I think it does. Yeah. Okay. In that case, uh, one thing you could do, Patrick, if uh, if if it's feasible t- for you and you're not using TrueCrypt, is try switching to TrueCrypt, where at least on a PC platform, it's really fast, and more generally, what I wanted to suggest is I don't think we're we're there quite yet. But Oh yeah, wait
0: a minute. Yes, he's using crypt setup instead of true crypt. The how-to describes crypt setup. So he's using a simpler, less sophisticated system. Uh, okay. Like. Yeah. And loop, there's there. three choices, crypt setup, loop aes and true crypt. So he should just change to TrueCrypt. crypt. Great. Yes. yes. Yep. Perfect.
1: And I did want to say that we're not quite there yet, but I don't think we're far away from all hard drives having on-the-fly AES encryption in their hardware. So it would not be something that is enabled by default. It's not something you would be able to add after the fact. You'd have to set it up and establish it before before you loaded an OS or anything. But the idea is, and we've talked about this at various points along the way, the idea is that everything written would pass through the encryption everything read would pass through it to be decrypted and at boot time the drive would be given the key which it would it would have internally that allows it to do the encryption and decryption the beauty of that and whether it's on a hard physical hard drive or on an ssd is it solves everyone's concern about these drives being difficult to erase, uh, th- you know that sectors have been spared out, that are no longer accessible, that might have a piece of, of important data on it, or the SSD's drive leveling might might um, move some data somewhere else that it hasn't, um, that it hasn't erased that, that forensic analysis could could get. But if everything is encrypted from the beginning, then when you remove that key from the drive, the entire thing is filled with noise that is no good to anyone. So, again, we see this in some laptops um, and in in some drives. It's not universally available. It's something that, that really has to happen. And the other problem is, since it's not something you can add incrementally, the drive, if you're getting it from a manufacturer, it has to have been set up that way at the time that it was manufactured and then you've got the problem of the manufacturers technically having the password for the drive so i mean it, there is a there, there's some logistical problems with implementing it for but for people who are really concerned um, once the hardware is there we'll at least have the ability not to leave data behind when we decommission um, hard drives yeah. or solid state drives kill that kill that slack space yep uh, moving right along to,
0: actually now I've opened, uh, <laughs> blew it. I opened up that Linux article and now I don't see the questions anymore. <laughs> I go back, back, uh, back to our wiki. Here we go. Question uh, two: An anonymous listener wonders, old Internet Explorers will IPv6 kill them? Listening to two ninety two, you're talking about the uh, <laughs> Microsoft's attempts to kill IE six. I saw a job description today that included website testing with, ready, wait for it, IE5. (laughs) But are these old versions of Internet Explorer IP version 6 ready? Were they designed to be protocol agnostic enough? What about old Netscape browsers or old game consoles like the Xbox and PS2?
1: What happens with them and IPv6? Really good question. Because in many systems, for example, like an Xbox, you know, you'll see configuration data that has the dotted quad IP address mm-hmm. you know it's 192.168.0.1, you know 0.1 or it's DHCP that knows nothing about ipv6 that you know it knows how to get a dotted quad ipv4 IP so the question is when ipv6 is being delivered from our curbs you know curbside, what happens to all of this equipment that we've got that predates it? And that's, you know, just one more example of why this is a challenge and why people are going to be, you know, going, kicking and screaming to IPv6. I believe what we're going to see is this will be something that befalls our NAT routers. You yeah, know, there's something my, called uh, tunneling. Exactly. There are all. I mean, it's a confused mess. And when we finally get to our how the net works, um, we're, we'll be certainly be spending a lot of time about the whole IPv6 to IPv4 transition. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot this summer and in the fall as as you know this becomes more and more important. But but it's it's what's really funny is that this is exactly what. The all the IPv6 proponents didn't want right the the original concept of of the internet was every device has its own IP address and we were supposed to have plenty because we after all we had four billion four point three billion in a thirty two bit address space but chunks of that space got allocated for other things and turns out we need more than that many, so we have to go to a larger a larger bit size for the address. So, we're going from 32 to 128 bits, giving us a really lot. <laughs> I mean, 340 with an amazing number of zeros after it is 2 to the 128 power different IP addresses. So, um, the problem is that we still are carrying the legacy of IPv4, which I would argue in our lifetimes will never go away. There will, there will be all kinds of systems that stay on IPv4. So, what does our NAT then do? Well, what it's been doing for us up until now is converting a single public IP address into a personal network of, of IP addresses. What it will next generation do is convert ipv6 down to ipv4 and there's no reason it can't we can that the the it's simple to have hardware translation that works in the same the same nature as port translation and ip address translation works that not that, that right now nat routers are not trans are not translating the format of the packets they're translating the content but they can certainly transmit the uh, translate the format so that you would have a NAT router with a IPv6 public IP that would behind it still be running and I bet they do an IPv4 192.168 and nothing within our home networks would know the difference
0: a lot of the uh... If you get, you know, Hurricane Electric right now, will give you an IPv6 uh, uh, a setup. In fact, uh, Randall Schwartz is boasting he's got like a Class C IPv6 network, <laughs> <laughs> or Class B,
1: because he because yeah. it's why not? There's so many they, addresses. In fact, I I don't think they allocate on a smaller than a certain, I mean, a large chunk. You you get like, you know, 65,000 IPs. It's like, okay, that ought to
0: to hold me for a while. So if you go to tunnelbroker.net, you can go, this is free. Hurricane Electric is uh, one of the big, they're like level three. They're one of the big backbone companies, you know, big internet service providers for internet service providers. And uh, what you can do is, uh, for free, get your own IPv6 by tunneling over existing IPv4. And it's, uh, it's you know, actually, it's, Randall did it because he just wants to kind of test it and play with it and learn about it. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting. So uh, tunnel, tunnelbroker.net, and you get your free IPv6 tunnel. And everything will continue to work. Your hardware doesn't stop working. It's just uh, it's seeing IPv4 over uh, a tunnel, and actually, the IPv6 is going over an IPv4 tunnel, so it's crazy.
1: Well, and I've, I've asked my, uh, my Level 3 guys uh, about IPv6, and they're ready to give me a block anytime sure. I need it. Sure. I've asked my T1 providers, Cogent, and the hardware that, are, that terminates my T1s is not currently provisioned for handling IPv6, but the, the neat thing is one of the engineers is one of my old friends from the Vario days, and he is... Going to be lobbying for the importance of switching over. Yes, because uh, I'd like to have IPv6 natively flowing in here, so I can b- do a bunch of experiments and you know prototype the technology that I'll need to, ultimately to move over to GRC. Yep, so it's, I'm it's
0: sure that's diff- what Randall's doing. You know, he's it's a first. It's also got great bragging rights. Oh yeah, it's, I'm running I, IPv6 <laughs> <laughs> all through the
1: house.
0: <laughs> um Good question. I think that, uh, in fact, there are a lot of people, I've talked to a number of people, uh, including Dane Jasper, uh, Dane Jasper, who is our uh, local internet service provider here at SonicNet. Uh, they provide the big pipes that we use to uh, stream and everything. And uh, they, he says, you know, he's not convinced it'll happen at all, that they'll just, you know, there'll be these hybrid solutions, there'll be uh, ISP yes. tunneling and so forth. Uh, yes. ISP NAT they call it so that you get IPv4, but they do IPv6 things like that. So, they-
1: well, for example, there are there. When I was talking, I, I did a conference call with the Level Three guys, and I had a, a technical sales guy on the phone who said, "Oh yeah, large corporations are switching to IPv6. You know, they're using it internally, internally, right? Exactly, but externally, they're still running over the IPv4 backbone and they're contacting IPv4 websites and you know, like, you know, I'm sure GRC will always be on 4.79.142.203, which is my, you know, www.grc.com's IP address. I'll, there's, you know, they're not going to take those away from me. I want additional ones because right. it'd be very cool to be able to do native IPv6 and check people's ports.
0: Oh, yeah. For Shields Up and things like that, you need to exactly. do Exactly. Yeah. Michael Noon in Circleville, Ohio, has an updated uh, or an update on Facebook and HTTPS. Remember, Facebook went HTTPS, kinda, but then it turns itself off at the drop of a hat. A long-time listener, first-time commenter. Not sure if you covered this. I was on Facebook today, received the following message when I attempted to access an app: "Quote, switch to regular connection HTTP. Sorry, we can't display this content while you're viewing Facebook over a secure connection HTTPS." Would you like to temporarily switch to a regular connection, HTTP, to use this app? You will have a secure connection. Oh, this is a change. Uh huh. You will have a secure connection upon your next login. Looks like they're trying to fix it. So we mentioned a few few weeks ago that once you turn it off, it just stayed off. Like you turn it off for an app so you can use an app because most apps don't do it. And so you're using Farmville or whatever. It turns off and then just stays off. So this apparently will turn it back on. Looks yes. like they're trying to fix the issue about having a shut off the secure connection completely. I did need to log out of Facebook, which people don't typically do,
1: but when I logged back in, it was back to HTTPS. Thanks for a great podcast. So that's great news. I wanted to let I wanted to update our listeners that that was fixed because a number of people wrote to me and said, eh, "Not so much, Steve," and and then verified that HTTP setting was disabled. If you if you acknowledged the um that old dialogue box, it unset it essentially in your configuration and mm. left it that way. Now, as you say, it's a little bit of a problem that you have to log off in order to in order to have it back. On the other hand, the what they're what what they're protecting people against is logging on in a insecure Wi Fi hotspot. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that it this really does look like Um, If you were to log on freshly, it will preserve your security. Of course, you still have the danger of applications forcing your whole session into HTTP. That they need to fix because you ought to be able to, you know, use FarmVille over HTTP but maintain the security of, of HTTPS Everywhere else, oh, so, it's so a, you're saying
0: it's a weakness in their implementation.
1: Yeah, I yeah. think maybe. May I mean, you know, Facebook has so much money; they're hiring people right and left, and and I imagine they can get this fixed. The good news is, they really does this really seems to be on their radar, and I and I'm glad they're they're moving forward. Mm-hmm. This that's that's just good news. Yeah. Question
0: four: Rommel in uh, San Diego wonders about the LastPass virtual keyboard. Hi, Steve. I'm wondering how secure it is to use the LastPass virtual keyboard when I log in to LastPass. Let's say I have to use a computer that I'm not familiar with. I don't have my one-time passwords. My phone is dead. Is using the virtual keyboard safe? LastPass says keyloggers can't detect what is entered using that keyboard. That's the whole reason they have it.
1: What do you think? Well, okay. So basically, he's painting himself into a corner where he's, he's he's using a computer that he doesn't control... And he doesn't have one-time passwords, which LastPass provides as sort of a, 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 an escape hatch for this purpose. And his phone is dead, so he can't use <sighs> telephone authentication. So he's backed up against the wall with their virtual keyboard. Well, so one thing I have to say is, well, what, have, what choice do you have? You know, it's the only other way at this point well, to log could not in. you log in, I guess. Yeah. And it, it is the case that they did not implement this virtual, the on-screen keyboard through the keyboard interface specifically so that keystroke loggers could not detect it. So all that's happening is that, that there's JavaScript there which is capturing mouse-down events in coordinates and translating that into keystrokes. Mm-hmm. So, so that's about as secure as you can be given the situation you're in. Um, The problem, of course, is that LastPass is still locking you into websites. And if the browser remembered your username and password that's being logged in, then those are sticky. So you definitely want to make sure you set up for... you use a browser that offers private browsing so that you can create a session that will not leave breadcrumbs behind... Uh, And then, yes, I think you can use LastPass's virtual keyboard with as much confidence as possible. I mean, it's, again, if something malicious were in the computer designed specifically to intercept the virtual keyboard, it could, because all software is software. Right. Um, But the chances of that are vanishingly remote. So I would say as long as, you, you know, you definitely want to use, always use a browser that offers... Um, you know, a a sandboxed private browsing option when you're lo- when you're logging into sites on machines you don't control, so that it's not going to leave traces behind. Um, and then LastPass is you know is the way to to log in. Question five: Joseph in Los Angeles has a VoIP hacking follow-up
0: question. Steve, I'm addicted to your podcast. That's good. Uh, it's like a free continuing education, but this is one class I really look forward to attending. Anyway, on to my question. I listened with great interest to your most recent Q and A, one thirteen, our last one. One of the questions had to do with being able to decrypt about half of a VoIP call. It was a if you didn't hear this hack, it's a very clever hack. My business using a VBR compression. My business has a PBX switch that allows us to connect a traditional office phone multiple phone lines and the ability to intercom other employees and so forth over the internet. Instead of a traditional phone cable, we plug in an ethernet cable. Actually, that's the kind of system we're going to put into the new uh, studios using asterisk, hosted asterisk. We've had this since 2004 when I literally begged my phone vendor to sell me the equipment so I could have employees work at home and answer our phones. We were the first customer in Southern California to install this equipment. The system has been incredibly reliable for seven years. I couldn't be happier until I listened to the podcast today. At the time, the vendor thought I was crazy for worrying about people hacking our phone switch. I was really worried about a bad guy somehow connecting to our PBX over the Internet to make phone calls. I was insistent that the PBX only be accessible over a local 192.168 IP. Here's my question. Are the VoIP calls through a VPN tunnel able to be monitored using this technique? I've always assumed that our calls are private when on the VPN but fully hackable over copper. Do I have anything to worry about or change? I'm very curious whether you and Leo gave me an A or an F for the way I set up access to the PBX. P.S. I'd like to vote to make the podcast even longer. You never, you never waste our time trying to educate us. Uh, okay. Interesting question.
1: Really interesting question. First of all, I salute... I d- definitely give A, him A, an A, A. A for uh, uh, Joseph in Los Angeles for, for going to the extent that you have. Um, I've also... Uh, when I did build this building that we were talking about earlier had a phone system installed and I remember and i 'm sure you do too leo there was a there was a bunch of scams going on with people breaking into PBX systems and getting outside lines who, then they would make transatlantic phone calls from. Um, I mean, like, and this is in the day, back in the day when, you know, long distance was really expensive. So that you, you know, you you thought twice before you even dialed out of your own area code. Um, and many corporate systems ended up clamping down by, like, disabling the ability to use an area code in order to prevent this kind of problem. So, the just to refresh, the hack which he's talking about, which has concerned him, is that what was discovered was that that variable bit rate encoding changes the size of the samples of, of digitized voice as a function of what's being digitized. Because, because some things um, can be compressed more than others. And an analysis showed that just by looking at the size of the data packets... About half of a variable bit rate conversation could be determined blindly. Just I mean, which is just really cool, speaker independent. Um, I mean, just amazing, cool hack. Now, the good news is he's over a VPN. Um, it's not clear though whether the packets will be varying in size after their VPN encapsulated or not. And all other network traffic is sharing that same VPN connection, which would tend to mask the the VP the, the VOIP packets within the VPN tunnel. So um, and if this system is what seven um, seven years old, it might not be using a variable bitrate codec. The older Asterisk systems were using fixed bitrate codecs, not variable. So um, if it's a fixed bitrate codec, there's nothing to worry about because that's leaking no information in this really clever hack. Um, or if there's other network traffic happening at the same time, web browsing or, or anything else, that it sounds like he's got everything tunneled through a VPN, that would mix in with the VOIP traffic, and there's no way then to, to that, uh, anyone on the outside, because the VOIP is going to be encrypted. So they're just going to look like b- completely opaque blobs of data that, that no one would have any way of dissecting further. So uh, in general, I think he's probably safe. Be, partly because of the age of of the system he's using, that's probably using a fixed bit rate uh, voice and not variable.
0: Well, also because it's a VPN. I mean, it's uh, anything outside of his uh, building is safe because it's inside an encrypted tunnel.
1: Except that if the VPN, for example, if, if 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 he's using UDP, the VPN might be just encapsulating the UDP packet. Oh, so I should would... I should mention that VPN. Because I always assume VPN is encrypted. It doesn't have to be an encrypted tunnel, right? It doesn't have to be, but I think it probably is encrypted. But remember, that was the cool thing. That's why the, this would... The, this, the, the hack that we talked about two weeks ago, you could read, you could determine 50% of the conversation from encrypted VOIP. Oh, right, but it's in tunnels. so that wouldn't affect the tunnel, or would it? Um, the, 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 the idea would be that the packet lengths would be varying... Oh, it and would. So it
0: would affect the tunnel.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the if, VPN if, doesn't pad? Uh, the VPN pads, but it still varies. So Interesting. So it, it, the, the, the VPN would have a fixed amount of padding, but the individual packets would still change in size depending upon their payload, which is encapsulated inside the VPN packet. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, I mean, it, it's possible... With a variable bit rate codec on a VOIP, which is encrypted and then encapsulated in a VPN tunnel, that you could still figure out what was going on inside. We should probably say that although this method's published, it is non
0: trivial. Oh, You're right. (laughs) It's not something some hacker has a data. You can't download it anywhere right now. (laughs) Because you need, I think you need a massive database of sound samples and things to compare it to. I'm sure it's just not a simple
1: thing to do. Yes. I mean, this was a very cool research project in a university that that showed a proof of concept. Now, we know that proof of concepts do tend to mature over time. Um, So... Well, yeah, I mean, somebody I, could I would, do a
0: rainbow table sort of a thing with voice samples, I guess, but it's not, I don't think it's widespread. It's think, not. Something and what are you really about. saying over the phone call anyway? Come on. <laughs> Question six, JT in Wintergreen, Virginia. Mmm, that's fresh. Wonders about MSSE versus MRT. Longtime Security Now listener, Steve, licensed Spinrite user, I uh, switched my home office and Home computers to Microsoft Security Essentials. That's the MSSE, which I keep current. And I run an automatic full scan with the Security Essentials every night. It only flags malware once every couple of months or so. Okay. Also, (laughs) (laughs) he says that so offhandedly. No big deal. Uh, Also, immediately after Patch Tuesday, I run the latest MRT in full mode. Thorough. That's what you want is that thorough scan, which it doesn't do automatically. Once I do that, do I have any further use for that month's... MRT isn't the once or twice daily update to MSSE definitions making security essentials more current, therefore more complete? That's a good question. Microsoft does not explain this at all.
1: (sighs) They really don't. And in poking around, I see a huge amount of confusion about this. So I wanted to try to provide a little bit of clarification. Um, Remember that we heard last week someone who told us that he ran the MRT... Um, which is the malicious software removal tool in full mode, and it found a an installed rootkit, which nothing else had found. Um, that is why Microsoft created the MRT, um, and and maybe it's the, the 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 consequence of the history of the way Microsoft got into this that explains why it's. Unclear. So I wanted to share what Microsoft says about their MRT, the Malicious Software Removal Tool. They said the tool removes malicious software from an already infected computer. Antivirus products block malicious software from running on a computer. It is significantly more desirable to block malicious software from running on a computer than to remove it after infection. The MRT removes only specific prevalent malicious software. Specific prevalent malicious software is a small subset of all the malicious software that exists today. And finally, the MRT focuses on the detection and removal of active malicious software. Active malicious software is malicious software that is currently running on the computer. The tool cannot remove malicious software that is not running. However, an antivirus product can perform this task. So the two, MRT and MSSE, the Microsoft Security Essentials, are very different. And MRT came about because Microsoft was having problems updating Windows with their monthly second Tuesday of the month patch on systems that had rootkits installed. Remember, that was causing problems, causing all kinds of crashes and things because Microsoft would change some core components whose internal offset addresses changed. And when the system rebooted, the rootkit would try to reinstall itself, hooking those physical locations, which in the new update had moved and it would destabilize the system. The, I mean, it would, it would crash. And so people were blaming the update for wrecking their system. And that's why it was so screwy because, you know, we reported this, like a few people are having problems. Well, yeah, those few people had root kits that they were unaware of. So Microsoft stepped up and said, okay, the only solution for this is for us to do a pre-update check for anything that has its hooks currently into the system. So that's the difference between the the malicious software removal tool, which only looks at things in RAM actively hooked in, versus security essentials, which is much more like a traditional AV. Um, the bottom line is. Uh, directly answering JT's question, is there a benefit to running MRT more than doing a full scan immediately after it has been updated? And I would say, well, um, given that MSSE is finding malware every couple of months on his system, I would say, yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> um, it is absolutely the case that MRT... Can find things that that security essentials may not um, although MRT predates security essentials, it came first as we remembered security essentials came later, so you know my sense is there 's probably some overlap, but you know believing in maybe using both a belt and suspenders um, you know run run mrt uh, it won't schedule itself automatically the way security essentials will but you could set up using task scheduler a, a task probably to run it. i don't i would bet there's some some command line switches this something i haven't looked at cuz normally you have to click a few buttons to get it to do a full scan knowing microsoft you can probably use task scheduler to run a full scan um, and it takes a, a while. So it's the kind of thing you'd want to, you know, automate and do at night. So I would say, yeah, probably worth doing. Hmm. Not not fanatically, but, you know, why not? You're running MSSE every night. So um, MRT and MSSE are not doing the same thing. Probably using, probably worthwhile to use both.
0: You can, I presume, run micro, use Microsoft Scheduler to run this automatically, I would guess. Right. I don't know what the command line would be to do a thorough scan, because otherwise you have to click
1: a button. Oh, I just did it. I typed in, I opened up a DOS box. That was opened up a, opened up a DOS box and just typed MRT space slash question mark. And it popped up a little usage with slash Q for quiet, slash N for detect only, slash F for forced full scan, and slash F colon Y for same as above, but automatically clear infected files. Ah. So you can definitely run it from the command line, meaning that you can you can give it a command line through task scheduler and have it automatically run at night doing a full, uh, doing a full scan. Perfect. Yep.
0: Moving uh, right along
1: to question seven, Jonathan Bly in
0: Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He's peeved with his bank. Steve, I've been listening to Security Now since around 2006. That's pretty good because I think we started in 2006. Maybe a little earlier, 2005. But I've recently been working through each and every episode to bring myself up to date. I also recently purchased your excellent spinwrite software. Haven't needed it yet, but I feel very comfortable knowing that not only can it save my bacon... Mmm, bacon. Yes. Oh, sorry. When one of my discs starts to fail but also provides preventative maintenance with the standard introductory material out of the way. <laughs> it's just boilerplate. I would now like to comment on my bank's ability or inability To allow the use of secure passwords for online access. The following is a letter I sent off to the bank through its contact link. Dear sirs, I have been trying to change my password to something more secure than the easily guessable combination of a dictionary word followed by some numbers to a secure password from GRC.com. I was completely dismayed at your ridiculous restriction of a password to a maximum of 16 characters. Quite honestly, that should probably be the minimum. Fine. I'll obey the restriction. I dutifully cut down the secure password from 64 characters to 16. I copy-pasted the new password into the appropriate fields. I hit the submit button. I got an error. Hmm. Maybe you don't allow copy-pasting of passwords. So I tried typing in the password. No, go. I tried typing in a new password that I made up on the top of my head, being a slight modification of my current password. No, that just went fine. I tried switching to Internet Explorer <laughs> and Firefox. Hmm. Neither allowed me to use the password I'd like to use. Fix this. Good day, sir.
1: As you can tell. <laughs> I'm sure glad the bank was <laughs> glad to get that note. We'll get right on that. <laughs> Good
0: day to you sir Uh, as you could tell i was a little miffed with the bank i feel like duct taping the software engineers to a chair in front of the computer and playing every episode of security now for them wait maybe you prop their eyeballs open as well now if i did so I would think they'd come up with a system a little more security-friendly. I understand that having a small password would be preferable to the people who have no sense of security and just want to log in quickly. I, however, live on a shoestring budget, and I need my finances to be completely secure. Anyway, love the netcast and everything you and Leo do. Just wanted to know that uh, your, your guys' hard work is very appreciated. All the best.
1: Jonathan Bly, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So anytime you see a limit on a password length... That's a bad sign. yeah. Because what it implies is that they have allocated 16 characters to store your password in their database. The one good thing we heard about the uh, hack of the Oracle MySQL database was that hashes were obtained as opposed to the password plain text. Um, Remember that a hash converts any amount of data into a fixed size token. And so if a site were hashing passwords as as everyone should in this day and age, then there would be no length on the password because they could take as long a password as you gave it And they would hash it to the same token, which that's what they would store. And when they asked you for your password again, they would perform the same function and see if the two tokens match, the one stored and the one they just made from what you gave them. So it's distressing that a bank is not doing so. What this means is that if at some point someone compromises their database, they'll get everyone's username and password Ooh. and be able to log in as them the beauty of using a hash is that if the database is compromised they get their usernames and the hash but the the whole point of a hash is you can't unhash it you know you can't unscramble the egg you 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 the the hash is a is a information lossy process that loses information as it moves through the hash but it creates something unique, and from that, you cannot guess what the input was. The only thing you can do is to, to use, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Leo, a rainbow table, is a, is a series, is a, is a table of known input and known hashes. So if, if it weren't a salted hash, which is the other thing that good security uh, requires that you do, where you add something different to it, like you salt the hash by adding something to what the user provides so that the result is still different from what what a rainbow table would provide then you 've got security so um, all I can say is uh, to Jonathan is that you know I hope that over time we stop seeing this kind of limitation um, from from websites where security really does matter. Now, mitigating all of that, 16 characters, if you really choose a, you know, a random chunk. I, I'm, I'm confused as to why he took 16 characters from what he got from the perfect passwords page at GRC and the bank wouldn't accept it unless they also don't allow some special symbols. You know, pound I bet you that's signs. what it is. I'm sure it, that's what it is. It might just be like A through Z, zero through nine, and dash and underscore or something, which is you know further annoying because then it's really preventing you from creating a um, a unique password. And then I'm wondering if it's case sensitive or not because the only thing you could really do then is play with with the case, given that the password is case sensitive. You know come up with a non alternating but but odd changing case if you're not able to use special symbols do anything you can to 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 you know make it something that is different from what someone would try just brute forcing so mm-hmm. anyway it doesn't bode well for the security of that bank
0: <laughs> it's a little weird yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's is good. If everybody wrote letters like this, uh, maybe people would start to, you know, what, look at these companies are going to respond to what their customers want. And all they're hearing is, it's too hard. Right. I lost tightening. my password.
1: What was my password? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if they start hearing from people who say, you know, I want you to be more secure, maybe they will. So a question is, as you said, two listeners with similar questions. Uh, Jason Stratman in St. Charles, Missouri, he wants to know about smartphones and fire sheep. Just started listening to Security Now when Firesheep first sprang up, and I heard you talk about it again last week. I started wondering, I, I'm using Facebook, or let's say Twitter, uh, the, the apps on my smartphone and on an open access point at a local bar. Can Firesheep still acquire my login information? Do smartphone apps use cookies like web browsers? It's funny because I had the same question that day, the Firesheep day, and I immediately tested it. Uh, Jim Gustwhite in New Jersey. Some thoughts and concerns raised by Firesheep and mobile apps? I tried Fireship a few months ago when you first mentioned it. I was startled, as many other listeners were. Many websites are switching to secure communications for browser-based HTML traffic, but but are there APIs used by mobile applications also using HTTPS? Couldn't there be a a similar session cookie issue uh, as with the browser clients on the desktop? Makes me wonder how safe it is to use mobile applications on an open Wi-Fi connection. Perhaps other, other listeners are similarly concerned, yes. And you should address this on an upcoming show. Thanks for the podcast. P.S. My 11-year-old son calls Steve the bot guy. His iPod died on a car trip maybe about a year ago, and he was forced to listen to what I was listening to. His first introduction to security now was during the discussion of botnets. So, Steve, you're the bot guy.
1: (laughs) Okay, so here's what we know. We know that cell phone radio is encrypted it may not be the best encryption in the world but it is encrypted so if your smartphone is using its cellular connection then you're relatively safe you're at least safe but you know in the local air between you and the cell tower or the terminus where it then goes over the internet at which point the cellular encryption is removed and then the actual data in the in the connection would be moving over the internet if you're using a and this must be what both of these guys Jason and Jim are talking about you you've got a smartphone which which also has Wi-Fi capability and preferentially uses Wi-Fi when it's available, much like, for example, an iPhone or an iPad does. If it's got, if it has Wi-Fi, it would prefer to use that than cellular. Then this is a great question. The question is: Is you know are are these apps encrypting themselves for you know not browser-based um, apps, but but but. Um, you know, smartphone apps that are, that are bringing their own little world with them. And I don't know. Um, the, the way to find out if you were curious and, and, and our, our listeners could, those who are, who are curious and savvy, um, would be to, to use the app with your smartphone and your Wi-Fi at home. I did. While looking at the traffic. And it was fine. Neat. So all you see is just gibberish. Yeah. They just don't, they absolute... don't,
0: they're not, uh, they're not using the same techniques browsers use. They're Makes using, sense. The, they're using, and if you think about it, they're using the API. They're not using, you know, browser cookies or that kind of thing. Right. Tokens. Yeah.
1: Or, or they might just be setting up, they might use a, an SSL connection, them, you know, it was like within the app just to have security from end to end or some kind of encryption. So, um, or, or as you say, Leo, it might just be a, a completely dense binary protocol. Yeah, it's the which API. Is, you know, their own API. Yeah, they're,
0: they're, you know, both, both Facebook and Twitter have an API for this kind of thing, and that's what they're using. Right. Uh, so I think there's nothing to fear. I, I certainly played with it and wasn't able to, as uh, it wasn't able to to get any uh, Fire Sheep love. That was the Good. first thing I did when I installed Fire Sheep. I said, let me see. What Good. else? Matt Vanderville, Woodstock, Illinois, wonders whether, after uninstalling Internet Explorer 9, his Windows 7 is
1: less secure.
0: Hmm. Love the show. Get to the point. I've previously chosen to remove IE8 through the add-remove-windows-components section after investigating and trying out IE9. I chose to uninstall it as well. Is my OS now less secure? In other words, will I be left with the old IE8 components that integrate with the OS, or am I left with the newer IE9
1: components? Oh, I get his question. That's a good question. It is a great question, and I have no idea. Um, Microsoft doesn't say. It was a great question. Um, So, Matt, here's the problem. Um, You really can't uninstall Internet Explorer. You can remove the icons for launching it, and you can remove the XE, but... It is the case that modules of IE are part of Windows. Now, when you install IE9, those are being updated. And that's probably a good thing. So I would imagine when you uninstall it, it probably puts back the things that it removed. Um, and so you're probably back to IE8. Um but he but-
0: uninstalled IE8.
1: Yeah, but so what does he really have? Exactly. Um. You. But and that's my point is you can't really uninstall IE8. You can. You can remove the UI of Internet Explorer, but you're still, for example, going to have the browser, the 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 browser helper, the the browser DLL, the the HTML rendering. For example, Outlook, you know, uses IE's browser renderer for its um uh, to display your email and for its uh, preview window and we we know that when you you know just previewing email can can cause your machine your toy windows operating system to be taken over so <laughs> so IE is still there that you you know if you're using windows you've got internet explorer it's, it is deeply integrated into your windows system i don't know whether having IE9 and then removing it, put back what was there before. I would guess it does. In which case, uh, you probably have IE8. Um, that is whatever OS, whatever IE came with Windows 7, which would be Internet Explorer 8. So, um, and also, I'm surprised that you just uninstall IE8. I mean, I'm. I don't use Internet Explorer any longer... ...except, for example, using Windows Update. I like to to go to to use Windows Update or Microsoft Update... ...to sort of, you know, more carefully pick and choose... ...what's going on with my updating of my software... ...and you can't do that uh, with Firefox. It only runs in Internet Explorer. Um, And also, there are times... ...when I'm downloading things from Microsoft that it wants to run me through all kinds of weird validation hoops. If I use Firefox, I go, oh, that's right. I got to do this from Internet Explorer. So for me, it's handy to have it around. I just don't use it every day. Um, and, you know, I've never been an Outlook user, so I'm not risking being bitten there. So anyway, I, uh, my sense is, uh, you know, don't use Internet Explorer daily. Use anything else, Firefox, Chrome, Opera. Um, But also know that Internet Explorer is still lurking in Windows. You just really can't get away from it. Yeah. It's part of the OS. So so the
0: only real question is, what does Microsoft do when you uninstall components? I mean, at some point, IE9 will become the default, and it will be using IE9 components, whether you install it or uninstall it.
1: Yeah, and so, for example, I'd rather have IE9 installed and not use it than then have removed IE9 and maybe be falling back to IE8 because then you're getting the benefit of the security updates in the component you can't get rid of anyway.
0: So that's the real answer is um, just install IE9 and keep it. Just don't use it. You don't yeah, have to exactly. use it. And right. You're not really getting rid of it. So it's, you know, it's kind of a uh, false sense of security anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, question 10 from Jared Lysett in Duncan... Dun- I'm sorry, Duncannon, Pennsylvania. Actually, I should be more specific. Duncannon, Pennsylvania, U.S., North America, Earth, Saul, Milky Way. He wanted to be, you know, really narrow it down.
1: Yeah, he didn't name a universe. I think <laughs> someone someone else said universe number, you know, We don't know. We don't yeah. know
0: what universe we're in. We're really That's the problem. Sure. We do know we're in the Milky Way, though. Yeah. He has the Chrome Security Tip of the Week. Week, week. First of all, I want to give a small tip of not saying bad things about java as one of your sponsors citrix uses java hey wait a minute we don't say bad we we, first of all if there's a security issue we say it what 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 steve says is if you don't have a need for java don't install it because there's no reason to install something uh, that you don't use given that it might have potential security issues precisely that's just good policy you don't install a bunch of crap you don't use nobody should do that however you're right citrix does use java and uh, and I think I don't as I have looked and there has never been a security issue with uh, Citrix so I don't
1: and know and they but by, by bringing it along they'll be keeping it current also that's right.
0: yes instead of it just it actually does that yeah it's interesting it installs fresh each time and makes sure you have the latest Java that's probably yep. why they do that yep uh, here's a quick Chrome security tip in about colon flags. So you're in Chrome you type in the URL bar about colon F-L-A-G-S. I'm doing it right now just to see what Which happens. is
1: just a cornucopia of, play, of things you should you should like think about before you click on there's them. A, there's all a, kinds of all kinds of goodies. Flags. Boy, I yeah. have a ton of flags. Um,
0: so uh, he says in about colon flags one of the most important flags there is, is click to play. This adds a third option to the menu in content settings, which is, you click the wrench, then options under the hood, content settings, plugins, and that menu item is click to play. Now, that means when you go to a website, you could choose not only whether or not to use the plugins at all, but also which ones specifically you want to allow. So... You can only play the YouTube clip, but not the ads or other possibly malicious content. Also, you need to expand the location boxes. I couldn't fit Alpha Quadrant into it. I guess Alpha Quadrant's a
1: game. So this is a great tip, and I did it because he's right. Your normal, opera- your normal options under managing your plugin content is an all or nothing. And if you go to about colon flags... And then enable that click to play and then restart the browser. When you go back into the options under the hood content settings plugins, sure enough, that, that what used to only have two options now has three. And the one in the middle, I think it is, is click to play. So you'll bring up a page whose plugins are disabled and then you can selectively click on them in order to allow that plugin to run. Which is a very nice little upgrade to Chrome.
0: I'm doing it right now. Tools.
1: And then uh, tools. And options. Options. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then under the hood is like the last thing down on the left. I don't see it. I must have some strange setup Uh here. Um, I'm in Windows and we know that there oh, are differences it's not in the Mac. Okay. Okay. We know that there are differences <laughs> oh, between rats. Between Windows
0: <laughs> I could set the flag but apparently I can't get to the menu item.
1: Yeah, the other thing I liked is that remember that Windows had the tabs on the side option and right. I don't think I don't think that the yep. the Mac version does, which is really weird. I why are there two different versions of Chrome?
0: Yeah, okay. I mean not sure the uh, the the uh, engine is the same, the WebKit engine is the same, which yeah. must be uh uh huh. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's,
1: that's okay. <laughs>
0: I, didn't, I didn't need that. Uh, let's see here. Going on. Stay
1: where you are, Leo. You're safer over there on the Mac <laughs> anyway. I'm holding on to, for right. dear life over here on this there, toy. There
0: operating. are plugins. There were plugins for uh, Firefox that would do that click-to-play thing for Flash and stuff like that. And that, was, well, that and, is a very handy no, feature. And NoScript does. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Uh, are you ready for a bonus question? Wait a minute. Yeah, that was uh, tw- 10. So here's a couple of bonus questions. First from Matt Peterson. We were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago about your old uh, InfoWorld column, the Tech Talk column. Uh, Although uh, they're mostly of historical or nostalgic interest now, writes Matt, I thought that the other Security out listeners might be interested to know that all or most of the back issues of InfoWorld containing your column are archived <gasps> on Google Books. <gasps> I didn't know that. So all of your insights from... Borland's Turbo Basic Language encourages fast, easy, and casual use column, December 1986, to the only drawback to the SCSI interface is its pronunciation, from January 1989, all the way up to your farewell column in 1993, are there to peruse. Ready for the short URL, kids? Snipurl.com slash sgtechtalk. Oh, dude, this is Great. Look at this. Did you know that, Steve?
1: Yeah. You knew it? Oh, you already knew that.
0: All all the columns are there. Oh, that is really a wonderful thing to have. I think that's fantastic. So uh, thank you for that tip. It's worth a trip, he says, down memory lane if you were a computer nut back in those days, as I was, or if you just want to see what Steve's mustache looked like. It was a lot darker. And a bonus question, too. Just had to mention this. Kevin in Ocala, Florida, found... Khan Academy. Stephen Leo thought you might want to check out this website, K H A N org. Many students use this to get help in math. It's a terrific training site and free of charge. I love the podcast and listen to many, but yours is my favorite. I'm going to have
1: to point Henry. Okay, now, Leo, go to this page, K H A N Academy, Y.org, and then scroll. Look at the scroll thumb how small it got, and just look at the topics. Holy moly. It's unbelievable. This is, okay, so Algebra
0: 1, Algebra, Algebra 2, which Henry is in, Arithmetic, Banking and Money, Biology, Brain Teasers, Calculus, and these are all worked examples uh, from various textbooks. So you can really learn California Standards Test, Algebra 2. I can sit down with Henry and play with that. Chemistry, oh, he's in Chemistry right now, too. First year high school or college course, roughly. Cosmology, astronomy, credit, credit. I'm just in the C's. <laughs> Developmental math, differential equations, finance. This is amazing. It's just an incredible sight. So whoa, who are these Khan Academy people?
1: See? I have no idea. Wow. But it looks, looks big and legitimate and it's free and just an incredible amount of content. So I wow. wanted to... Point our listeners to it. They so I'm sure some people will find it very useful. It says a free world class education for anyone,
0: anywhere. The Khan Academy is an organization on a mission, a not for profit, with the goal of changing education for the better by providing a free world class education to anyone, anywhere. Wow! Free of charge, completely, in every area. This is so cool. It's just one guy. They're telling me it's a person. It's an individual who does this. Twenty one hundred videos exercises
1: a knowledge map i'm going to school (laughs) i'm going to school i I had a hard time pulling myself away from it it's like okay wait i gotta get this podcast produced here you know what i really love
0: just uh, creative commons licensed yeah i think whoever you are mr khan i salute you that's awesome hey great tip what a good way to end i'm glad you uh I you threw that one in, because that is yeah. that is fascinating. Wow, I never heard of this.
1: Hey, and we got to thank Kevin in Ocala. Thank you, thank you our listener. Yeah. Our listeners bring it to us.
0: Thank you all for being here. We do this show every Wednesday about 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time at live.twit.tv. You can tune in and watch or just download the show. It's available uh, all sorts of places, of course, on iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, anywhere podcasts are, or you go to our website, twit.tv. That's where all the shows are. And each show has its own page. Usually it's an abbreviation of the initials. In this case, twit.tv sn for security now. And uh, let's not forget. And by the way, there's a TED Talk. This Khan guy, Salman Khan, has a TED Talk. So if you want to know more about this guy who does Khan Academy, that's awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that TED Talk. Uh, he says, let's use video to reinvent education. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Brilliant. Leo. Wow. I'm so glad there are people like this in the world. Uh, Steve has uh, copies of the uh, shows. I'm glad there are people like Steve in the world who also gives away a lot of free education. If you go to grc.com, you'll find uh, all of the audio of all 294 episodes, including 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired or people with bandwidth caps. You'll also find uh, the smallest version, which is a, a, a text transcription of it, which makes it really easy. All the show notes, too. That's grc.com. That's where you'll find SpinRight, Steve's bread and butter, his program to maintain hard drives, and all his freebies that he gives away, including the perfect paper passwords and more. grc.com. Steve's on Twitter, too. Well, let's not forget, uh, he is at
1: sggrc. And I think I'm either approaching or right around 18,000 followers. So I've been tweeting a lot about Fukushima and... Oh, various things that happen. So I'm trying to create a useful stream for people who follow me. And uh, so uh, Thank please you. do. Thank you, you for, for doing that.
0: I really appreciate it.
1: And Steve, we'll see you next week. We're gonna talk about the, uh, the Komodo theft of the SSL certificates, how it apparently happened, what people have wow. uh, about certificate revocation, how that system works, which is something we've never covered before and have lots of information about that. Should be great.
0: Thanks, Leo. Thank you, Steve. Thank you all for joining us on Security Now. Security Now.